This edition of the Global Leadership Series held at Customs House in Brisbane, Australia, explores the topic, how do we house every Australian? As homelessness increases and support systems are stretched to the limit, the root causes of housing insecurity and the barriers to affordable housing remain sources of debate. UQ homelessness and housing experts, Professor Cameron Parcell, Associate Professor Marie Peterson, and UQ alum Eloise Atkinson, Chair of the Brisbane Housing Company, debated the causes of and solutions to Australia's housing crisis. The discussion was moderated by Dr. Carly Manane from the UQ School of Architecture and introduced by Professor Cameron Broom, Head of the UQ School of Architecture. Good evening and welcome. My name's Cameron Broon. I'm Dean and Head of School in the School of Architecture at the University of Queensland. I'd like to begin our evening together by acknowledging the traditional owners and their custodianship of the lands on which we are meeting today. On behalf of UQ, I pay our respects to their ancestors and their descendants who continue cultural and spiritual connections to country. Together, we recognise their valuable contributions to Australian and global society. Welcome to Customs House and for the latest instalment of the UQ Global Leadership Series. This extraordinary event is now in its 11th year of thought-provoking conversation and debate about the big issues that shape our community, our world and our collective futures. As background, we all know the facts around the housing crisis. National house prices have soared by a record 21.9%. Well, over in recent years, over 400,000 Australians are in need of affordable housing and over 150 people are on public housing waiting lists. Homelessness has become more pervasive, impacting wider swathes of society, while our support systems are stretched to the limit. All the while, the root causes of housing insecurity and the significant barriers to affordable housing remain sources of debate. Many of us would call wicked problems. So how do we house every Australian? I'd like to introduce our esteemed panel of experts who will share their research and insights into this crisis on its impact on the most vulnerable Australians and talk about how we, we might move towards a future where all Australians can enjoy housing security as a human right. The first of our speakers is Eloise Atkinson. Eloise is an alum of UQ, completed a Bachelor of Design Studies in 1987 and a Bachelor of Architecture in 1992. Eloise is a Director of Cross-Disciplinary Architecture and Design Practice, Dikey Richards, and Independent Chair of Not-for-Profit Housing Development Company, the Brisbane Housing Company. Our second speaker is Professor Cameron Parcell a researcher in poverty, homelessness, social services and charity in the UQ School of Social Science. He's also an Australian Research Fellow, Research Council Future Fellow. Our third panellist is Associate Professor Marie Peterson, a researcher on the impacts of poverty and homelessness on older people, and she's in the UQ School of Nursing, Midwifery and Social Work. And finally, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Dr Carly Manane, who will be moderating our conversation this evening. Carly is an architect and researcher on the value of public space and urban neighbourhoods to local communities based in the UQ School of Architecture. So to get things underway, I'd like to hand over 
to our moderator, Carly Manain, to get the conversation underway. Please join me in welcoming our panellists. Thank you everyone for joining us today to talk about this incredibly important question of how we house every Australian. This topic is particularly critical at the moment with the COVID-19 pandemic um, fueling the crisis in the housing market at the moment. But the question of how to house every Australian is actually 234 years old. The year 1788 marked the beginning of homelessness in this country as every person on the continent was housed before the first fleet landed in Botany Bay. So I begin by acknowledging the continuing connection to country for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and pay my respects to their traditions of homemaking that have existed here for over 60,000 years. Since colonisation, policies addressing a lack of housing have shifted over time. Although Australia signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, including the right to adequate housing, today there is still no coordinated plan for addressing the structural issues that cause a lack of housing and make particular individuals and groups susceptible to homelessness. So to start off today's panel, I thought we might address some questions that will help us understand the wider context of how we house every Australian. So Cameron, um, what does it mean to lack housing? What mm. is homelessness and who counts as mm. homeless? It's actually a much more complicated, complicated question than you'd think. <laughs> but, but what I think is most important, the way that you provoked it early on, and that is where we think about the way that we made Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people homeless, because that really gets to the heart of what home is. Home is much more than a structure. Home is about feeling safe. It's about feeling um, in control of your life. It's about feeling valued and legitimate. But it's also about this idea of um, value and this is, your, this is your place of legitimacy and this is where you're recognised as a legitimate person. A legitimate person, not just in terms of the labour market, but in terms of caring for family. And what we know homelessness is, is the antithesis to that. Homelessness is the um, fundamental lacking of the resources to control your life. And what we know, the most common thing that people are homeless experience is this threat of violence, this fear of not being able to keep themselves safe. So in Australia, we actually have a sophisticated understanding or a definition of homelessness, and it very much centers on this idea of what home is. And when we think about home, we know that it's much more than the, the built structure. It is about this feeling of belonging and sense of empowerment. But what we also know is that home is an important means or the building, the, the built environment is an important resource to feel to feel at home. So we have to think about homelessness in terms of this, you know, what it prevents us in terms of how we live as citizens in society mm. and safety is paramount. I guess on the news recently, um, I'm sure we've all seen this, a lot of news stories about people in private rental housing who seemed fairly secure and then all of a sudden kind of mm. become homeless. So Marie, how easy is it to become homeless? It's incredibly easy um, and I think it's, Sometimes I think it's quite wrong to have this stark difference between being homeless and actually being in private rental because you're very much at risk of homelessness by being in private rental. Um, certainly in the work I do in, um, with older people um, in living on, reliant on the age pension and renting, they're living with enormous stress about rent rises because they can't afford it. Mm. They're spending 70% of their income on rent. 
They can't access aged care because they can't afford it. Um, hot and um, heating at the moment, they wouldn't be able mm. to afford it. So incredible stress with just making ends meet, but this idea that, I, that all of us, if we're renting, can be evicted through no fault of our own. Mm. So with the tenancy laws that we have in Australia, the threat of eviction, the threat of rent rises, and, and just I, I think also to touch on what Cameron's saying, that where you've got a house that doesn't keep you safe, that you're at risk of falling or you can't put your wheelie walker into the loo or you can't take your groceries up the stairs, all those things that we take for granted, makes your, your home a dangerous thing as well. Mm. And it's really hard to get those things modified and, and adapted when you're in the private rental. So there's this really fine line, I think, and I think some ways it's better to, to have these things to thinking it about risk of homelessness and homelessness together um, because, of, because of that lack of security that, mm. that a lot of people have. My area is very much in uh, terms of older people, but this applies to everyone who's, who's renting for privately. So families, yeah. No, it's very scary. Yeah. Um, I guess there's often this belief that homelessness is the result of an individual person failing, um, but we know that one reason for homelessness is this lack of affordable housing and inability to own your own home. Eloise, could you tell us a bit about the range of housing that we have in Australia from all spectrums? Spectrum, sure. <laughs> Sure, and I, I think it's a very game person who's willing to throw that stone that homelessness is is an individual sort of responsibility. <laughs> but anyway, that's another that's, a, that's another matter. Um, I'm yeah. sure no one here does. <laughs> um, so you know, there is a lot of confusion, I guess, um, around just kind of what all the different terms that are being used by uh, media and governments in terms of what's social housing, what's public housing, what's affordable housing what's affordable home ownership, what's unaffordable home ownership. But in, in, in general terms, um, I guess we go, there's two tenures, there's rental and there's ownership. Um, and within that, you know, there's, there's income levels from very low incomes to um, high incomes. So there's, we're just sort of looking at that continuum. And I think it is always useful in housing discussions to think about the continuum because each bit of the continuum actually affects other parts of the continuum. So we, we need to sort of look at all of them. It's no point just concentrating on whichever um, bit is kind of your expertise because it does have impacts on the other parts. So I guess generally we think of it at, at the kind of really pointy end of the continuum is crisis accommodation, um, sometimes called emergency housing. And then from that, we look at sort of transitional housing and, um, and temporary housing. Rough sleepers don't even probably get onto the housing continuum, but they're certainly down in the crisis accommodation area. And then usually we look at sort of social housing as, as the next ladder, let, let's, um, next part of the ladder. Um, and that's generally considered to be income-based. So um, you could have, uh, when we talk, to me, social housing is income-based housing. It's usually 25% of income. And the landlord can either be the state uh, or the landlord could be a community housing provider. So some, the state's usually considered public housing and with the housing, uh, community housing providers, it's usually termed community housing. Um, so that sort of gives you a bit of a, a feel about those two. In terms of an income, uh, you can't earn more than 32,000 to get uh, to be a single person on the social housing uh, wait list. So it's not a big spectrum. If you're a family or you're five people in any 
configuration of that. Um, you can earn as a group up to 58,000 as um, a whole gross income. So we are talking about very low incomes. In terms of affordable housing, and Brisbane Housing Company is a community housing provider, so that's the area we, we basically generally sit in. Um, and our model is around discount, discount to market rent. So um, obviously if we're housing people at Nunda, um, we, we probably can get close to 74.9% of the local, income, uh, local rent. Um, but if we're housing them in New Farm, we're probably more likely to get somewhere around 50% of the, the local rent because we also need to cap that so it's 30% of income, which is generally considered to be affordable if, if somebody's not paying more than 30% of their income. Which takes us very nicely to the private rental market, which is sort of next in the ladder. And, and as Marie said, and as Carly said, some people in the private rental market at the moment are paying between 50 and 70% of their income. If you were earning a million dollars, you still got a lot of income to do other things with. But if you're earning $32,000, you don't have a lot of income once you paid 70% of that um, in rental. In the private market, uh, you can also get Commonwealth rent assistance, which you've probably heard of, which is a top up from the federal government. Um, and in fact, the federal government has shifted over the last few decades in really supporting Commonwealth rent assistance, which some people think maybe that money could be better spent in the social and affordable housing market rather than giving it to private rent, private landlords, but we can discuss that. <laughs> um, and you've probably also heard of the National Rental Affordability Scheme, which was another, uh, it's an affordable housing model that Rudd brought in, which was really to try, <coughs> excuse me, to bring money, private money, into the sector. Um, and it was really successful. It got some pretty bad press around some international students using the scheme. But on the whole, it's been a really successful model. Um, and unfortunately, it's um, as we do a lot in this country, we get great models, we get the University of Queensland to test them and evaluate them, and then we throw them out the window. Um, so unfortunately, uh, that scheme is, is coming off and, uh, and there's a lot of media around what's going to happen to those people who are currently um, in those units, which will revert to rent, uh, private rental market. And there's, there's probably not too many private landlords out there who aren't a bit excited about getting additional um, uh, rental now that the market has skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. Then we move into affordable home ownership. Um, and there's lots of interesting models around that. Some people think of that as shared equity. Um, I'm working with a lovely group of women, some of who are here, um, uh, a project called Sharing with Friends, which is looking at, at a shared equ equity model um, for older women. Um, there's a Nightingale model that's based out of Melbourne that a lot of people have heard about, which is, is trying to um, take away all the sort of additional things. Maybe we don't all need two en-suites. Uh, maybe we just need to get back to basics and trying to reduce costs that way so people can buy into the market. There's co-housing, there's cooperative housing. So there's lots of different affordable models that have been tested. Um, and then finally, we have straight sort of uh, home ownership and um, we don't like to call it unaffordable, but it's unaffordable for most of the people that we're trying to house. It's really good to have an understanding of that spectrum. And I guess on that, that high end of the spectrum, is a really massive factor in any discussion on housing because owning a house is 
the biggest source of wealth for most Australian households. So um, one of our audience members, Sheena, has asked a really important question um, about the implications of this, which I'll direct at you, Cameron, first. Um, Sheena asks, how do we curb the Australian predilection for approaching the housing market as a de facto stock exchange or as part of a wealth portfolio? As long as this continues, there will always be the tacit understanding that house prices are meant to rise as if they were a tradable commodity rather than a basic human right. I don't want to be politician-like and dodge the question, but <laughs> I think it's probably one of the best questions that you can ask. But what I think, what I think sits under that question is that, and it goes to the, the, the kind of the remarks earlier about homelessness being a choice. I actually think that it is a choice. It's a choice of how we organise society. And we've chosen that... Housing is a wonderful means to make a phenomenal amount of money from. That, that's wonderful for those who want to do that, right? But what that means is that there's a massive undersupply of housing that's affordable. And this is really, really important because what we know is that if we look at the research, we know that domestic violence is a trigger into homelessness. We know that addiction is a trigger into homelessness. We know that leaving prison is a pathway into homelessness. We know that leaving the out-of-home care, so leaving foster care, is a trigger into homelessness. All of those things are true, but the truth varies depending on which country we're in. If we're in a country where there's a massive supply of housing that's affordable, a massive supply of social housing, if we're in a country that has made a decision that we want to end and prevent homelessness, all of those truths are no longer truths. We know that in a country where we've made a decision that housing is not a commodity to be wealthy from, rather it's a right that all citizens need, we know that the penalty, and let's be honest, that a woman pays from experiencing violence is not homelessness. We know that under certain conditions, these individual or trigger events in life need not lead into homelessness. So we have to not think about the individual attributes or things happening within the family dynamic. We have to understand the broader housing system. And we've chosen that the housing system in Australia has about, depending on how you measure it, three to 4% social housing. As Eloise said, there's a, there's a very complicated housing system in Australia, but what it means is that for people who are, well, traditionally poor, but now even people who are lower income, actually housing is inaccessible. And that is, has nothing to do with them and everything to do with the decision about how we organise Australian society in terms of income poverty and the availability of housing stock that's affordable. I, I think, or at least I hope, touched on the question, or at least tried to maybe um, provoke it a little bit. Yeah, it's pretty sobering, isn't it? Mm. We've made a choice to get to this position. Um, you mentioned some of these issues that are intertwined with homelessness and housing that aren't always immediately obvious. Um, Marie, you've done some research into male violence against women and children. Could you tell us a little bit about how violence is impacted or housing is impacted by violence? I've done quite a bit of work in understanding why we have increasing numbers of older women who are experiencing homelessness. There's a diverse range of life experiences that's involved in women 55 plus who find themselves at the risk of homelessness or homeless in, um, in their later years. We can think about women who have had what I term have, whose lives have been a constant struggle. They've often been um, brought up in families where they've experienced poverty and where they've experienced trauma. Women um, have often had to leave home 
early, maybe due to a pregnancy, or quite commonly have had to leave school quite early too. Um, at those, those events are often related. But then into a relationship where violence is part of the norm as well. But what happens in that situation is not only the impact of violence on their well-being, but in terms of the impact on their education, the impact on then on what they can do for work, um, which means they largely end up working in low-paid casual work. So working in a factory, working in aged care, working um, as a cleaner, working in hospitality, where there hasn't been that ability to manage financially because you're renting privately and inevitably caring for children because the relationships have been violent and very part of that violence is also fear and a, a way of managing that fear is leaving and caring for the children without any financial assistance from, from, the, from the father. So we have women who have, have had a life of disadvantage and constant struggle. But we also have women who have had access to resources in their life, have had considerable um, education, um, and at, the, at times in their life um, with a marriage and raising children have had mortgages or perhaps home ownership. But also with their lives is accompanied with violence. And what's really interesting, I think, is, well, it's not interesting, it's horrible, let's be based, it's just, that at the, at the time that the marriage is ending, that we really see a real change in economic abuse, coercive control. So we see mortgage documents changed. We see forgeries. We see um, where there's been relationships where there has been coercive control. Women don't have their name on the, on the mortgage. Um, they're threatened if they um, have share an entitlement to the property. And they relinquish the property because they just want to get out. They're fearing their lives and they're fearing the lives of their children. Quotes like, oh, I just told the judge I'm going to pay the child support. The child support never, never, is never paid. Bank accounts. When, when I was a child, my mother used to get child endowment, which was a payment that was made. And, you know, we've got various forms um, of that now. But that those bank accounts have no money in them because the, the, the father has, has, has had access to that bank account. The importance of understanding domestic violence really asks us to also take account of economic abuse. Because by thinking about how impactful that economic abuse is in the early stages of the marriage or the dissolution of the marriage has lifelong impacts on that woman, which culminates in homelessness or at risk of homelessness in later years. Because her life is one of working, providing for the children and living in private rental, which means you just can't get by. And the women do get by until they retire or have to retire. They don't have the nest egg relying on the age pension, you can't afford private rental when you're on the age pension. So this, this impact of trauma, this impact of violence, and I really want to flag not only the, the threats and the physical violence and sexual violence, but economic abuse as well, and how that's very much linked to what we're seeing um, with older women and, and the risks of homelessness. 
And I think that that will be a key message that we all have, that as a society, when we're talking about every Australian having a house, we're thinking about a house as a place of well-being and a right to housing and a right to feel safe. And the question of violence, particularly against women and children, as a, is a big reason why that isn't achieved. For the reasons that we talked about with children being in care, where people end up ending up in the criminal justice system, all those reasons that a common feature is violence. Mm. Yeah. And, and I guess there's a lot of other people connected to that person experiencing these things. We've got a question from Zoe in the audience um, who asks, and I might direct this to you, Cameron, um, with the rise in youth and family homelessness, how do we prevent intergenerational mm. trauma of insecure housing impacting current and future mm. generations? It's, it's a great question, and can I, can I respond by saying that the, my last remarks were the melancholy part, saying that homelessness is a predictable and patterned part of the way we've organised society. That's, that's the sad part of the story. But underneath that is this proposition that homelessness is actually a result of deliberate policy decisions. Now, to respond to this question and the more optimistic narrative that I want to present now is that we can enact different policy. We can actually change Australian society collectively through doing things differently with public, economic and social policy. We can, for example, change the way that housing is commodified in Australia. We can change that through tax incentives. We can change that through planning, for example. We can change that through financing. But of course, we can also intervene when people are homeless or at risk of homelessness. And I'm conscious that Karen Walsh from MICA and Kevin Mercer from Vinnie's are here this evening and their, their organisations are actually out there doing this work now. And, wh and what we know is that there are lots of barriers that people face navigating the system. And we've often thought that it's the families, the vulnerable families or the, uh, the deviant children or the, uh, the problematic father, that they're just not navigating the system correctly. If only they changed. What we actually know now from evidence in Australia that we can actually change our policy systems and those forces that actually produced homelessness no longer do. We saw this through COVID. Mm -hmm. COVID was actually a remarkable experience in public policy. Mm -hmm. The moratorium on evictions, for example, people just didn't lose their tendency going into homelessness. We also saw that people are on the streets, people who were in boarding houses or severely crowded dwellings, they actually were supported immediately overnight to get into their own accommodation. We can see that Actually, the type of ideas that I'm proposing as optimistic, as idealistic or as utopic, I love it when I get accused of that. We actually saw during COVID that we did that in Australia. And when we do research with those people who experience it, actually, we have mothers who go, I'm, I'm now able to parent my children. I'm able to have them return from care. I'm able to enrol in TAFE or start work. I can buy their uniforms and send them to school. Nothing changed other than our, they didn't change. Our policies changed, the way we allocated funding, the work we asked our not-for-profit organisations to do changed. And when those policy changes that we made actually hit the ground, people who were at risk of homelessness were no longer at risk. They were securely housed. Can I just, it, can I just put a plug for your nice shiny story though? <laughs> Unfortunately, we did the same thing. We learned how to do that and then we forgot. Then we put them all back on the street. So exactly, which proves, we, which proves perfectly that we can do it, although we didn't do it. 
And, and what we didn't do, we didn't actually fundamentally address the failures mm. in the market. We just kind of propped up the failures. And that works for a period of time for some people, but it absolutely mm. didn't work to address poverty or the housing affordability because some of those people are supported now back into homelessness. Mm. So this is an example in, we changed policy and that worked, but it's not an example in we transformed Australian society. But I think it gives us optimism yeah. that we can. So there is a significant, phenomenal, a radical, you might say, amount of work that we need to do. We haven't done it, but we did something during COVID. And we've also, as you've said, we've had pilots around Australia that have worked, but we haven't institutionalised them into Australian society. We can do. And I think the great challenge for all of us now is to ensure that we're progressing the conversation, the agitation, whatever it takes, so that we can take the lessons that we've learned through COVID and through other examples of successful organisations, successful pilots, and put them into practice in a, at a more um, macro scale. We've not done that yet, but I think we can. But whether we can or can't is up to us. I think we have the capacity to do it. It's not a knowledge gap problem. No, no. It's a will. Absolutely. An aspiration. <laughs> I think there was a question about, you know, can we learn from Canada? Can we learn from the States? Can we learn from the UK? Yeah, we can. But we actually do know the answers. We know the answers here. We keep, you know, yeah. by step by step. We do know the answers. It is just, um, in my view, um, to, the an to the question, how do we um, remove trauma from young, young people? Well, we just house them, actually. That's, <laughs> that's how we remove intergenerational trauma, is that we house people um, and we give them a home and we stop. I'm going to have to just say it. Someone has to say, we need to stop negative gearing. <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there and we have to you know, stop the, the taxation system that incentivises incentivises investors rather than owners and, and owners over renters. You know, that it's not that we can't do it, uh, but we do need to have the intention to do it. And that's, I think, the gap, not the knowledge gap. In terms of why these policies aren't changing, Marie, what, are, what have you found in your research about some of the thinking or the assumptions behind homelessness or negative gearing that are, that are making it so hard for this change to happen? I think in some ways it's, it's um, and like that's a really hard question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think what's happened is that we've, and this I think coincides with the, the idea of negative gearing, is that, that just so much is on um, your own hip pocket and what's going to be good for you and what's going to be good for when you're voting, how are you going to be better off? Mm -hmm. We've moved away, and I, you know, I'm thinking we've moved away, but maybe we haven't um, never had it and strong enough, is, is about thinking about where our tax dollars go and what we contribute and thinking about what's collectively good for society. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of you know how we're voting, it's not about well, does that mean I'm going to get a tax cut? No. Does this mean that people are going to be housed? Is this does it mean that by um, our tax dollars and and you know taxing those big companies that don't pay anything, um, that we can be thinking about the policies being funded for the welfare? And the because welfare means that the word welfare means well-being, the well-being of Australians, um, and thinking about that in a collective way, um, and and how when we're thinking about housing, I'm using the word well-being, and it's about your health. How can you have health? How can you care for your children? How can your children do their homework? 
go to school? How can they do all those things? How can we love each other and care for each other? All those things we think about our collective well-being, it, it happens in a house. And I'm saying violence happens in a house too. Uh, I don't want to discount that. But housing is essential um, for that well-being. So I think that's that's one thing that I, in terms of policy. The other thing that I think happens, and this is particularly um, because my, I'm concerned with um, older people, older people's lives, is that we tend to silo things. You know, I'm telling you that housing is about health. So we need to be thinking about the big policy structures that we have in Australia, like housing and health. We need to be thinking them interconnectedly. Because you've heard me talk about the aged care, um, sorry, the aged pension is too low. That's, that's connected with housing, you know, and health is connected with housing. We have a policy in Australia about healthy ageing. How can we have healthy ageing if we've got older people highly stressed because they can't afford to pay the five or ten dollars um, to have a cleaner in or to have someone, because it pays, they've got to pay, or have someone help them have a shower. Um, or, you know, I've had quotes from um, people saying to me, I can't afford to go on an outing. I can't afford to go to the RSL and, and have lunch. I just can't do that stuff. They can't afford a coffee. So when we're thinking about housing and policies, we need to be thinking about those interconnections from those big policy structures, like aged care, like our social security system, like healthcare. Um, that's all, housing is, is all those things. Um, so we need to have that kind of frame as well. We've recently seen a change in federal government. Eloise, do you think there'll be some <laughs> corresponding changes in policy? Um, yeah, look, I, I was being a little negative there. Sorry, Cameron. But um, <laughs> it is actually a very exciting time for, for housing, I think. Um, I've been involved in housing for 30 years and I've never seen it in, in the media as much as it's been in the last um, maybe five years. Unfortunately, I think that's largely because now middle class people are struggling and so that, well, fortunately or unfortunately, mm. but because it's now coming home to, um, you know, my children and others, uh, it suddenly has raised the bar in terms of interest. But Queensland, interestingly, is probably at the forefront in terms of uh, looking at a new funding model for housing, which is very exciting, called the Housing Infrastructure Fund that you may or may not have, have read about. Um, but it is looking at a billion dollar fund um, that will produce $40 million each year to um, a, a different structure, which is a, a top-up structure rather than a grant structure. Um, and the importance of that is what we really need is um, some long-term strategies in terms of funding social and affordable housing. If, if every four years there's a new government, there's a new minister, and the new minister needs to get his or her head around what's going on, and that takes about six months, and then they have a position that takes them about another six months to work out that's probably not the right position, but they've only just got into the portfolio. And then we start looking at housing, and then by year three, and I'm not being cynical, they're starting to think about the, the next election. So, you know, that is not a cycle when you've got a design them and build them and tenant them, it's just that doesn't work. So we really need a system that is looking 20 years, you know, putting things in place for 20 years. And the Housing Infrastructure Fund does that. So it, it is, as I said, it's a, it's a yield gap. And importantly, it's bringing in institutional investors. And we know that there is a lot of money out there 
in terms of superannuation funds, especially if it's for environmental or social or government governance sorts of issues, which social and affordable housing ticks that box very quickly. Um, you know, they want to put their money somewhere, but we've got to find a system that gives them enough return to make sense of that. So that's what the Housing Infrastructure Fund is doing in Queensland, and it's just taking off. But more excitingly, Queensland doesn't always get to be the head of the pack. Um, the Albanese government had um, used a very similar system, uh, similar ideas, similar funding model, except they put it on steroids, and it's a $10 billion fund, and it's called HAF, as against HIF, Housing <laughs> Australia Future Fund, I think it stands for. Similarly, trying to get the, the institutional investors into the system. We all know that we're all trying to do more with less and governments haven't got enough money and that's all fine, but we've got to find other ways. And, um, and using these two funds that will bring in institutional money, which also means you get the money, you get the housing up front as against in five years when you've gradually got the funds. So I do think it's exciting. I think that those two things will change the funding regime if we can get them up. And I guess importantly, because I think uh, that it is all about scale. And I don't mean scale in that we have to have 100, you know, 20 storey buildings, but in terms of creating scale, we will not solve this problem by building 10, 10 units at a time. We can build 10 units across 10 sites at a time and we might get closer. Um, but we really need a really big push into the supply and, and that, that needs you know, a big push on money. And I'm happy for it to be anybody's money and I'm happy for anyone to own it, in fact. Um, I'd rather BHC owned it, but I mean, really anyone. Uh, but it really, you know, we have to be looking at different funding models that are going to give some, um, the investors some longevity and also the providers who are who are trying to work within a system um, and 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 having to change every four years as, as, the, as the governments change. You would have heard about build to rent, which is the new, new sexy word. It's actually the same thing that community housing providers have been doing for a very long time. It just means hold, holding one building and, and purpose building it as ongoing rental. But there are private developers who are interested in that. And I think that's, as I talked about in terms of the, the continuum, you know, if there's a whole lot more private professional landlords in the private rental part of the continuum, that's good for everybody. Um, and, and so that's another place where there's a whole lot of energy in terms of um, trying to get that system up, which is a very familiar system in, in, um, uh, in Canada. Mm, that's really exciting to hear that Queensland's kind of leading the way a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, a lot of this talk about policy and um, large-scale structural issues can be pretty overwhelming for um, just an individual person. And Stephanie in the audience raises a great question about action at the local level. Um, Cameron, what can we do as individuals um, to increase the supply of safe, well-located, well-designed, affordable housing? And is it possible for us as individuals to help shift these kind of dominant mindsets in the community about housing? This is one of the hardest questions to ask. And, <laughs> and we've written a lot about this. And we've written a lot about this when we've how can we be just when we're responding to the consequences of systems failure, but without addressing those systems failure? How can we be just by trying to work with someone who's homeless, but we can't actually try and end their homelessness? It's really hard. And what we know is that if we invest all of our time and effort and energy and money in just trying to respond to the consequences of their homelessness, 
we're never going to solve it. And there's always going to be the argument that, oh, I can never build 100,000 houses. That, will, that argument will stand for eternity. So we need to completely change the narrative whereby the only way we can really help our fellow citizen, the only way we can really help is by changing our poverty of ambition. We need to understand that actually people need housing. They need housing for all the reasons that we've discussed. And that can only come about through changing Australian society. So we have to be absolutely involved, not one or the other, by directly helping in an interpersonal way. And sometimes that can be in a fleeting interaction, a fleeting relationship with someone who's homeless. We need to be engaged in that. At the very same time, we need to be doing everything we can, whatever that is, so that the structure, Australian society, the norms, our expectations, our aspirations in Australian society change. We will never, ever, ever really achieve justice by just tweaking with our existing arrangements within society. We need to radically change how housing is thought about. Actually, we need to radically change how we think about our fellow citizens. And as soon as we do that, and we recognise that they, just like people in our family, deserve access to their own housing, we need to do whatever can be done to ensure that those changes happen. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard, but I think we need to do two things simultaneously. That interpersonal direct care, help, whatever that might be, in addition to, never instead of, in addition to ensuring that there is housing that's affordable and safe and secure for all Australians. Anything short of that is an injustice that we can't, we can't condone. <laughs> Marie, how would you respond to Cameron's call to action? You're a hard act to follow. <laughs> Underpinning what Cameron's saying, and, and um, I think we'd all agree, that, that housing is a right. It isn't a right in Australia. We discharge people from hospital into homelessness. Um, I see lots of nods. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and social workers are responsible for that. Yeah, well, well the whole system is, but that doesn't, that doesn't fit with our ethics and our values and why we're doing things. So it, that's linked to that and, and understanding that um, it is an absolute right. We can only have health, we can only have well-being with that. Um, so I think that's really important. I really like how, in and hopefully with, I'm very um, great to hear what you're talking about, but I think just thinking about our local streets, like I live in a very middle-class area, it's a very green, lots of trees. We need, we need social housing on my street and lots of the you know, parts in the world do that. We don't have suburbs where we have lots of disadvantaged people living. But social housing is in my street. I think it's a third in the UK, is it Cameron? A third of new stuff? That's about, 20, about a fifth. A fifth, a fifth. So thinking about the houses in your street, a fifth would be social housing. So the children from those families are going to the local school around the corner. And that we as a society, because we're pretty good at the not in my backyard stuff, you know, which comes back to a lot of what we're saying about having a, a collective responsibility um, for the well-being of all Australians. And I think that comes to, in lots of ways, but I think is about um, that, those kinds of things as well. I think that's a really useful um, thing to think about when you're kind of sitting at the dinner table and trying to explain why it's important, but to think about, you know, what kind of society do we want to live in? What are our values at the end of the day? So I think that's a really helpful. And I think, you know, certainly what my research has taught me um, is that 
if I was to develop alcoholism, I wouldn't be homeless. You know, if I was to get quite sick with depression, I wouldn't be homeless because I've got resources, I've got superannuation, I've got a family that would, a mother that, that would help me out, my children would help me yeah, out. <laughs> you know, so there's a whole lot of reasons behind this. So to be talking about mental health is the, is the reason behind homelessness or alcoholism is the reason behind homelessness. Um, it's, it, it takes away from those, those really important structural issues. I, mean, um, I think on a very basic level, and this is the architect, not the academic, but it is, it, it's about welcoming new developments in where you live. It's about not just not objecting, but actually supporting good housing. And, and people need to see good examples. Um, and, and we spend a lot of time at BHC trying to show people who will still say, oh, yeah, oh, that's right, yeah, that's old housing commission. Like, well, no, it's not. We've moved along. Let us show you some of the buildings. Let us show you some of the, the environments that people are living in. We know that people in themselves do a lot better when they're living in an environment that is respectful for them and shows dignity. That's, there's so much research about that. It's just a fact. Um, and you know yourselves, if you go into a, in a space that you feel comfortable in, it's much, you know, life is much better. So I think on a very practical level, you know, we can all, um, we can all support developments um, and, and that support might be encouraging them to do it better if you think that it's, it's not great. But uh, um, it, it's a really practical way that we, we need to get more housing and more diversity in all our suburbs um, and that can be done well. Chantelle has asked how can architecture students and emerging architects start to tackle the housing crisis? It is about informing yourself. Um, it's about making sure that you, you, you do understand at least at some level, funding and policy and, um, and how the built environment is affected by those things. And some people who've used architects might laugh at this, but it is about listening um, and, um, and making sure you understand, um, you know, the, the, and don't assume, but get to know if you can't do it on an individual basis, at least the research and the people. In my experience um, of working in, in the area for a long time, I often say to people, yeah, certainly innovate in terms of housing um, for people who have little or no choice, but don't experiment on them. Um, that, you know, most people I've met in my career want to have a house that looks like a house. They don't actually want to have a yurt and they don't want to have a Japanese capsule. Um, you know, they actually want a house that, you know, that they imagine looks like a house. So that doesn't mean you know we need to not develop and we don't need to do good design. But I, I think that um, you know experiment on people who've got a whole lot of choice. That's great. But the people who have very few choices, um, I think we need to give them something that um, that they understand and that they want. There's always room on the side, on the edges um, to experiment with cardboard boxes and and new materials and those things. But as I say, I don't think that um, low income work. Uh, low-income earners and, um, and people who are at risk of homelessness need to be the ones who are experimented on. Mm. I, I think if you're designing a house that you wouldn't want a member of your family to live in, then go back to the design. <laughs> Good advice. Um, thank you so much, Marie, Cameron and Eloise, for generously sharing your work and research insights. Thank you to the staff who made this event possible um, and also to our fantastic audience for participating in this discussion. Yes, thank you.
Thank you. <laughs>